I am very excited in particular for the Indigenous Health Panel. Um, I think I stole Tolu's answer. <laughs> Healthcare Forum. In this final episode of a four-part series, you'll be listening in on my conversations with Dr. Chris Karp and Dr. Fred Cohen, where we'll be talking about transformative tools and patient therapies in the context of universal health coverage. Today's conversations with Dr. Karp and Dr. Cohen are bringing together several concerns that have arisen in previous episodes. So first up is transformative tools. Transformative technological tools made an appearance in the second and third episode of this series. In the second episode, we heard from Dr. Tom Insell about how the smartphone could be used to improve mental health outcomes. In the third episode, we heard Professor Hannah Cooper refer to the way technology can be extremely useful in gauging the prevalence of disability and impairment. In case you didn't catch those episodes, this is what Dr. Insell and Professor Cooper said. There's a saying in the business world that you don't manage well what you don't measure well. And um, it's the case that we haven't done so well in mental illness. We haven't really been able to bend the curve on morbidity or mortality. These are deadly illnesses. So coming up with better measurement um, could be one way to make progress. Um, But how to do that? So the possibility of using um, the phone, which where you people are engaged with all the time, as if we could, if we found the right signals, have objective measures that would be daily or almost continuous, and potentially even passive. It wouldn't require someone to fill out any forms. It wouldn't require a um, a physician or a nurse to, or a psychologist to call them and ask them how they're doing. You just get the information. I love technology. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's lots of fantastic technological innovations, particularly for measuring impairment. So with visual acuity, you can now measure visual acuity on a mobile phone app and similarly with hearing impairment so that you can get much more accurate um, measures of how common hearing impairment and visual impairments are in a population. With other kinds of impairment, like mental health conditions or physical impairments, they're much more difficult to measure using technology at the moment, but I think the future will be heavily around technology. Today I'm talking to Dr Chris Karp, Director of the Global Health Discovery and Translational Sciences team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We're going to be talking about the ways in which technology can be used to develop tools that will help reduce health inequity in the poorest countries. We've been talking a lot about health disparities between low and middle income countries and high income countries, as well as inequalities within national healthcare systems over the last few episodes as well. So my conversation with Dr. Karp is really about understanding the ways in which technological innovation can be used to address the sorts of inequalities we've been talking about throughout this series. Okay, um, so I thought maybe we could talk first about the work that the Gates Foundation does um, and specifically the mission of the Discovery and Translational uh, Sciences team which you run there. Great. So the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation um, has a fundamental equity mission in its global health work. Global health is really the center of gravity of the entire 
foundations spend. Foundation spends about $5 billion a year, and again, the dominant part of that is in the global health space. As part of the equity agenda, um, that is invested against specific strategies. I generally think of it coming through four filters. The first is an outsized burden of disease, measured in terms of uh, mortality and, and disability-adjusted life years, um, in the population we focus on, which is the poorest of the poor. And that, um, defined by the best data possible, and the foundation has put huge resources into trying to um, get much better data for the world on the causes of, of death and disability around the world. Um, the second filter is that those conditions causing that outsized burden aren't getting appropriate attention from other groups, appropriate resources. Third is, frankly, um, uh, an abiding belief in the transformative power of science and technology. And fourth is it's a family foundation. Sometimes things come to the top that might not otherwise. My team uh, in Discovery works across all of those strategies to fund the development of transformative tools to aim at the goals of those strategies. So drugs, vaccines, nutritional interventions, biologics, etc. Fantastic. Um, and do you, uh, you mentioned the importance of data. I think that's that's something that Dr. Agnes was talking about in, in her absolutely speech. Absolutely essential. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about data. Why is it so hard to get um, a broad data set, or is it or is that the wrong way of sort of approaching the idea of data? No, I, why is it so hard? Well, getting ground truth data, even in something as, as fundamental is when infants, young children die in various parts of the world, what they're actually dying from is actually not an easy task. Um, the standard uh, verbal autopsies actually have been shown not to be very useful at all. So to give you one sense of the level of granularity that the foundation is aiming at, uh, we have the so-called CHAMPS program, and I'll forget the ac what the acronym stands for, but it's fundamentally to address that very problem in, at the moment, seven sites around the world, um, which is what's called minimally invasive tissue sampling. Um, so minimally invasive autopsies to really get ground truth in what infants and children are actually dying of. Um, to get much better data. Yeah. Um, data is absolutely essential to, to anything we do. Yeah, I feel like it's a theme that's that's been recurring for me as a non-healthcare expert. It's really interesting to sort of, the other one that's been coming up is, is trust, but um, that we were Trust and that. equity. <laughs> yes, that too, yes. Um, so you're here talking about uh, harnessing, catalyzing, sourcing, nurturing uh, innovation. Um, so I thought, well, to develop transformative tools to address uh, global health. Is that title inequity. short enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought maybe um, for the benefit of, of myself and for listeners who maybe aren't um, healthcare, healthcare experts, maybe we could just um, think about uh, what, or what sorts of innovation are we, we talking about um, when you say innovation and, and how can we harness and catalyze and source and nurture that innovation? Sure. So what I'm predominantly talking about is, is really technical innovation, but I just want to stand back and say that all kinds of innovation are absolutely essential to get to the equity goals. I mean, if you look at how the foundation started, um, in large part it was catalyzed by Bill and Melinda reading an article in the New York Times about rotavirus and how it caused an immense burden. Uh, 
yearly mortality among kids in low and middle income countries, and yet there's a perfectly efficacious vaccine that was used in high income countries. Um, so multiple, multiple sorts of innovation went into de dealing with that and other problems. Uh, the first was setting up novel financing, Gavi, um, uh, for introduction. Um, um, secondarily, um, uh, helping with technology transfer and, and, and development from, from the ground up of novel rotavirus vaccines made by developing country manufacturers. Um, beyond that, at the moment, we're still working because it turns out that the rotavirus vaccines uh, in common use, which are live uh, attenuated viral vaccines, oral vaccines, do not work as well in our population. So very high efficacy uh, in high income countries lower efficacy in our geographies, and so we're looking at other ways, uh, non-replicating rotavirus vaccines, et cetera. So again, I just want to say that there's a whole spectrum of innovation that's needed, but what I, what I will be talking about here is about um, technological innovation. And, you know, often that innovation is found not in global health itself, so in the development, uh, recent development, for example, in leaps and bounds in structural biology and protein engineering in the ability to deeply um, profile human immune responses, um, et cetera. And so it's often getting uh, advances in related fields and in fact in the interstices between fields together to work on problems like novel vaccines, structure guided immune design, et cetera. That's so interesting, that collaboration between disciplines, I think. That's something that's becoming, I guess, trendier and trendier in academia, the idea of interdisciplinary work, but actually it has so many benefits. Um, I mean, I've had that in my, in my own research, but I think it's, it's really important um, to, to think about, you know, almost outside your discipline and, and what other disciplines can, can bring. And not just academics. So, yeah. you know, we are funders, and, and for that we, we work with academics, we work with biotech, we work with pharma, we work with... Um, product development partners, um, you find it across the spectrum. And often people have, the most interesting is people will devise novel technologies, wonderful hammers, uh, but have no idea how they could be used, what the nail would be in global health. And so bringing the ideas together with the technologies is something we spend a lot of time with. Yeah. Um, and so you're talking about uh, transformative tools to address uh, global health inequity. So in terms of the specifics of the transformative tools. Maybe there's um, a sort of particularly pertinent example you can you can talk about. Sure. In fact, I, I'm giving an example um, uh, tomorrow in the, in the talk, which focuses on malaria vaccines. So, um, you know, there have been great improvements in bringing the toll from malaria down over the last 15 years, but those have kind of stalled. And most of those most of those improvements have the bulk of it has come about through vector control. Um, bed nets, insecticide-treated bed nets. Um, we're seeing, as would be predicted, um, resistance to insecticides and the relevant mosquitoes. And so the foundation works on a variety of fronts, um, both in vector control, um, drugs, um, biologics, and vaccines. And the example I'll be talking about is really focused on the vaccine part of it. There was a 25 to 30 year development of the RTSS vaccine. Um, uh, GSK, the foundation, Walter Reed, um, which is a major advance. Um, on the other hand, it's not the eradication tool we need, so it's a first step. So we're working now on second generation vaccines. 
and the confluence of just those things I talked about before, which is a much better understanding of human immunology and ability to deeply uh, profile human immune responses, advances in structural biology, advances in the ability to pull out human monoclonal antibodies that are protective or not and understand the epitopes they recognize and devise vaccines that fit those structures. So. And in terms of implementing these sorts of tools, is it down to healthcare professionals or is it about training people within the, the community uh, to, to be able to deliver that, uh, those tools? So at the moment, these are, these are fundamentally academic, bio, biotech, pharma cross-collaborations. Mm -hmm. so. um, and this is also kind of leads on to something that I've asked quite a few um, speakers, which is... Um, I suppose, what is the role of, of academia in, in all this? Because I think there's a tendency to think about academia as, as a space where we conceptualise change. And it's, it's that sort of transition from conceptualisation to, to implementation that, that, that interests me. So much in, my, in terms of technical uh, innovation, that's where most of it happens in my experience. Mm -hmm. so. In academia. Yep. And then, yeah. So then how do you uh, get it on the ground? Great. That's a long journey. Yeah, definitely a long journey. Yeah, um, but no, that's in part what we try to nurture, yeah. whether it's spin off into biotechs, um, etc. Okay, great. Is there anything else that you uh, would like to mention that we haven't sort of covered? No, this has been a pleasure. Our... Thank yeah. you. Okay, great. As I said at the beginning of this episode, the two conversations I'm having today with Dr. Carp and Dr. Cohen are bringing together several concerns that have been raised in this series. We've already heard from Dr. Karp about the transformative possibilities of technology in reducing global health inequity. Dr. Fred Cohen is the second speaker we'll be hearing from. We'll be talking about the ways in which biomedical innovation can be translated into on-the-ground patient therapies. We've been thinking a lot in this series about the ways in which we can make sure discoveries that happen in academic environments get translated into practice that will make an impact on the ground. In the first episode of this series, we heard from Dr. Tarani Loganatan and Dr. Ed Fitzgerald about the role of academia in promoting universal health coverage, both in the context of achieving universal health coverage in low and middle income countries, and in the context of affording universal health coverage. I think in academia you have a bit more power and freedom. I mean, yes, it, uh, it is a bit more limited, but there is a bit more where you can actually tackle and look at issues that um, you can't in government. Sometimes in government, uh, you, you basically have to follow the, the, the government line because you're part of a system, right? So you have to follow your boss and the boss of above. So you can't speak out of line or you can't uh, think out of the box. But in academia, you have that freedom. And with that freedom, you should have the responsibility. What is academia's role in, in helping to create affordable universal health coverage? So I think it's, a, it's an incredibly multifaceted role uh, and, and likely underappreciated. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that um, actually implementing universal health coverage and implementing change in healthcare is, is very hands-on. And I think there is always the, the risk that great work around this area in academia um, remains a great piece of work and isn't actually put into active practice. And I think um, the future has to be around addressing that interface and ensuring that the really good work that's being done in that area sees the light of day and achieves practical implementation to actually affect change. 
And in the second episode of this series, we heard from Professor Vikram Patel about the democratisation of knowledge that task sharing provides. If you remember from that episode, task sharing is about training up members of the community to deliver care in regions that experience poor health coverage. So that's one of the most powerful ideas about task sharing, that it democratises knowledge. It reduces the incredible asymmetry of power that exists in the healthcare field. There are a few people with MDs and PhDs who hold all the power because of the knowledge that they have. And I think what task sharing does is it actually diffuses that. It allows that knowledge and that skill to permeate into a much broader section of the community. And in doing so, it reduces the asymmetry. And so therefore, it's extremely empowering, not just for the person who's been trained to deliver these interventions, but actually for the entire ecosystem of healthcare. And in the third episode of this series, we heard how Professor Hannah Cooper is kept up at night thinking about how research relating to underrepresented disabled populations in low and middle income countries can reach the ground. So I'm an academic and I work a lot with NGOs and this is a question that keeps me awake at night. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to just do work that gets published in scientific journals and sits in shelves. And the question is, how do you get what you find to work? Um, so what we can do, what we do, for instance, the review about disability and poverty can be used for advocacy or in other settings we've developed and tested interventions, say to um, improve menstrual hygiene management for women with intellectual disabilities in Nepal. And making that leap from the academia into practice is really, really hard. And I can't say that I've nailed it. But it comes down to working on the right questions. It comes down to having close working relationships with the NGOs and with international agencies like the WHO. And it comes down a little bit to kind of luck. So, for instance, a lot of the work that we did about Zika has been much more in the public attention because people are interested in Zika than other work that we've done, which I think is as academically rigorous. And that's something that's quite hard to replicate or control. Speaking to Dr Cohen today, I wanted to understand how biomedical innovation could be translated effectively into patient therapies that can make a difference to people's lives. I'm Fred Cohen. I'm a physician and scientist from the United States who studied in Oxford in the late 70s. My career has taken me through medicine and science in an academic setting to more recently uh, as an investor in healthcare companies. Great, so uh, you're co-founder and senior managing director of Vida Ventures, which looks to help transform biomedical innovation into patient therapies. And so I guess my, my first question is, do you think there's a lag between pioneering scientific work and this work getting converted into therapies that will actually help patients? Um, I think there's always been a lag. I think the lag that I observed when I was a medical student in the early 80s um, has shrunken. But the reality is it takes a long time to turn an idea into a product. Um, you have to remember that something that works in the lab may work once or twice, it may not work every time, but by the time you're administering it to patients, they're a little more finicky about that, they kind of want it to work. Because mm, we've been talking a lot, well, I've been talking a lot with speakers about the role of academia in uh, promoting universal healthcare for all, and mm -hmm. talking about academia as a space where we often conceptualise change, and it's sort of trying to then uh, transform that uh, into things on the ground and actually be able to implement that change. So I kind of see what you're doing as attempting to, to bridge 
bridge that gap? Is that how you see it? Right. I mean, they often say in theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see how how, how that is the case. Um, and I, I also, I saw that you were elected to be part of the National Academy of Medicine in 2004. And I was wondering if you felt like by being part of the National Academy, you have this sort of enhanced responsibility to to try and translate academic work sort of into on-the-ground work? Um, in the United States, the National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Medicine, National Academy of Engineering mm-hmm. are um, at some level honorific and some level organizational. Mm-hmm. Um, the opportunity to be a member of the National Academy of Medicine if you're on an academic track is really quite a wonderful thing. As you switch to a more commercial role, it matters a bit less, um, but the mission of the National Academy of Medicine is to uh, advise the U.S. federal government on uh, policy and medicine and health care, and, you know, lately it seems like they could use a little extra advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I just want to talk a bit more about, uh, or talk about either ventures and the work that, that you do. There. Um, I saw that one of your core values uh, is that you always do sort of patient-led projects. So how does that affect the way that you work? It's our observation that if you don't really make a difference to patients, um, you're unlikely to get rewarded for what you do. Um, there are always incremental advances that you can try for. Um, that doesn't seem very aspirational to us. So we've decided to go big or go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, if I'm correct in terms of the way that you work is that you invest in companies working in therapeutics and you advise on their boards as well. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know the, the basic idea of my job is I give somebody money and I hope to get a lot more back. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. And... You've recently invested in uh, Cadient, uh, I saw. Perhaps you could talk a bit about uh, Cadient, what it's trying to do, maybe what, what gaps um, it's trying to fill. Sure. So uh, I happen to be the father of an autistic individual. Mm-hmm. My daughter Jane's now 25. Um, on that journey, I learned a lot about uh, autism, the impact on the individual, the impact on the families. and. After uh, watching the field evolve for 20 plus years, um, it seemed to me that there were better ways to deliver care to young children with autism and to help their families in managing that issue. And so uh, we conceptualized the idea of Cadient as a vehicle to pull together autism care providers who are focused on behavioral therapy Um, and to try and create an integrated and more holistic approach to those young children. Together with uh, TPG, an organization that I used to work for as a partner, Vita Ventures partnered to create this $300 million vehicle to uh, do our best to change the way young children with autism are uh, managed and helped. Mm. That's fantastic. Um, I was wondering whether behavior therapy is something that's uh, new, being applied um, to uh, the care when it comes to autism spectrum disorder, or is it just something that you felt uh, hasn't been used enough so far? 
uh, behavioral interventions are the standard of care in autism therapy, um, and they have their beginnings with Ivor Lovas's work at UCLA. I think that was the mid-60s. I think there have been a number of studies that have shown that it's the appropriate approach based on the things we know today. Um, my daughter uh, was part of an intensive behavioral uh, intervention program in the mid-90s. And while uh, a lot of research work has gone into autism and a great deal of study of possible pharmaceutical interventions have been uh, brought forward, uh, to date, behavioral interventions, occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, seem to be the modalities that are most effective for uh, helping these uh, young individuals to learn. Mm -hmm. And also just speaking a little bit more about your portfolio, I saw you have quite a few companies focusing on therapies for cancer. Uh, so uh, Kronos Bio, Sutro Biopharma, Allergene Therapeutics, Pioneer Immunotherapeutics. Um, those are some of the ones that I, that I saw. And I was wondering whether, do you have a, a sort of specific focus on um, therapy for, for chronic diseases like uh, cancer, or maybe you were trying to uh, fill a specific shortfall there? So one of the things that we've come to appreciate is that as venture investors, um, we don't have nearly the resources that the pharmaceutical industry has. Um, and so we try to focus on disease opportunities where a trial in a handful of patients can tell you if you have something truly valuable. So if I were to go after uh, a new treatment for diabetes, um, I would probably need to study it in a thousand or more patients and show that it was not only effective but really quite safe. That's an expensive thing to do when the trials would take years. Um, by contrast, if I developed a therapy for pancreatic cancer, there really aren't good therapies today. If it worked in 10 of 30 patients, you'd be high-fiving. <laughs> And if it was a bit toxic, you'd get over it um, because the alternative is uh, much less palatable. So um, we've tended to focus on disorders where um, positive trial results in a handful of patients uh, tells you that you have something of real value and uh, that leads you more often than not to cancer um, and less likely to things like high blood pressure or diabetes. And um, I suppose cancer is something that um, lots of us have experienced indirectly in the sense that we know um, at least one person who's um, had uh, cancer. So I guess it's almost personal for everyone in the same way that um, sort of the autism spectral disorder is project with the Cadian is uh, working on is it's very personal to, to you. Um, and I, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, with the, the companies that you're uh, investing in, how many uh, people are you hoping to, to reach at these therapies? Are, are you thinking globally? Are these, are these companies that are working globally? Or are they working in uh, specific countries? We tend to be relatively U.S.-centric because, again, we're a relatively small organization. In other parts of my life, I sit on the boards of companies in Shanghai and in Sydney, and you know I'm a relatively global individual. We're sitting here in Oxford today. Next week, I'll be in Shanghai. 
Um, but if your goal is to innovate in medicine and the capital that you have available to you is of the scale that we do at Vita, um, it's more difficult to pursue global opportunities. And innovating in healthcare in the U.S. is uh, something that has a fair bit of momentum right now. And so we're enjoying that momentum. I can see how as well it's, like, like you say, it's helpful to focus locally uh, to start with and, and sort of enhance your, the, the potential to succeed at, at what you're doing, especially being small. And then if you do make great breakthroughs, you know, that can then potentially be shared on, on, a, on a global platform. Right. As an example of that, in my prior job at TPG, uh, one of the companies I was involved in starting and uh, whose board I continue to serve on is a company called Genomic Health. They developed a test that was designed to help women with uh, what's called node-negative estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, so a relatively early form of breast cancer, decide whether they needed chemotherapy or not. Uh, in the late 1990s, uh, the observation was that every woman with node-negative estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer should get six months of chemotherapy. They came away from this feeling a bit battered, having lost their hair and a number of other sequelae. That treatment plan was based on the notion that if you treated women, then only 13% of them recurred. If you didn't treat them, 17% of them recurred. Um, most women really wanted to know if they were one of those four people that was in the difference group. Um, and so we developed a genomic test that looked at the tumor and helped oncologists to realize that probably uh, three-quarters of the women gained no benefit from chemotherapy. All the benefit was concentrated in a genomically more aggressive form of breast cancer. We last year completed a 10-year prospective study of this treatment, which documented its advantages. And um, I think relatively recently, NICE in the UK has decided that this is appropriate for the care of people in the UK. Uh, Germany and ICWIG is in the process of making that decision as well. And so it started off in the U.S., but it's gone globally. Um, so I think someone said, you know, think globally, act locally. At least you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, that's a really fantastic example to show how something can start local and, and go global. And I suppose this gives sort of hope for the other projects that you're working on, um, that they might also start locally and go, go global as well. Um, and I think I just wanted to finish by um, asking, well, so Vila Ventures is, is very young, if I'm correct, it was founded in 2017. Where do you see Vila Ventures sort of in, in 10 years' time? <laughs> it's a bit of a cliched question, but do you think it's, it will be uh, something quite different to, to what it is uh, today? Um, you know, when I went to medical school, they gave me a stethoscope, but not a crystal ball. So <laughs> um, I'm kind of limited on those. I feel very fortunate to be able to participate in changing the, the way we practice medicine. Having practiced medicine for a meaningful part of my career and still on occasion seeing patients, you know, it, uh, it's real to me that there's need for change and evolution. There are all sorts of issues we face on the cost of that change. 
Um, but uh, as I age, I am increasingly anxious to make sure I maintain my health and a number of uh, people that I know think there's nothing more valuable than your health. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, we'll press forward. As my conversations with speakers come to a close, the Rhodes Healthcare Forum is also coming to an end. Wow. Dr. Elizabeth Keish, Warden of Rhodes House and CEO of the Rhodes Trust, giving the closing address. I mean, I, this is, uh, I've actually heard that particular word, wow, uh, several dozen times over the course of the last 48 hours. And a number of you have come up to me and said, you know, I've just been at major conferences, global conferences, but this one is different. This one is different. There's something about this cross-generational, global, cross-disciplinary uh, conversation that makes it especially exciting. And we've been reminded of the remarkable advance that thanks to hard work by people around the world that we have made in health and longevity, but also reminded of the glaring and in, in some cases widening inequities within and across societies in health outcomes. We've been challenged and inspired to think that universal health care is the greatest gift a country can give to its people, but also that healthcare systems can be and often are racist, exclusionary, shaped by prejudicial paradigms. We've learned about the crucial role that the private sector, that government, that activists, that the academy, that funders can play in moving us from surviving to thriving. But how each of these needs to challenge and change its business and as usual approach in order for us to sustain and accelerate progress in a time of new and enduring challenges to human health, including climate change, xenophobic nationalism, loss of trust in scientific expertise, and much, much more. Hearing Dr. Elizabeth Keish's closing address made me reflect on these last two days. As you may have guessed at various points throughout this series, I'm not a healthcare expert and neither am I studying healthcare. So what you've witnessed over the course of these four episodes covering the forum has also been my own personal journey of learning and discovery as someone from outside the academic and professional side of the healthcare system. Coming into this weekend, I was starkly aware that my only experience of healthcare systems was as a patient or as a relative of a patient and I had discounted these experiences as something that would not be useful in thinking about the drive towards universal health coverage. However, what various speakers have mentioned in this series, speakers such as Professor Vikram Patel and Dr Chelsea Bond, is the need to recognise that patients are experts too. Experts through first-hand experience of the physical and or mental illnesses, disabilities or impairments that they suffer from. Several themes really stand out for me as key topics that kept arising throughout this weekend. Number one, trust. Trust between communities and healthcare professionals, between the academic community and the wider community, between smartphone users and data collectors in the context of improving mental health outcomes. Number two, the responsibility that academia has in driving change, in collecting reliable data that can be used for advocacy. The responsibility that academia has to find and build platforms through which countries can share and learn from each other's mistakes and successes. Platforms where knowledge does not just flow from the developed world, 
to the developing world as it has traditionally done, because we all have things to learn from each other. Number three, the need to acknowledge those people on the margins who are getting left behind in the drive to ensure universal health coverage. The need to recognise that the global push towards universal health coverage should not be to the detriment of building functional, local relationships on the ground. If things are working consistently locally, it is likely they will be working at national level. Number four, the need to acknowledge the prevalence of mental illness and the ways in which it intersects with physical illness, which is an example of how we need to understand that identities overlap, that we need to contextualise patients, engage with the whole person in front of us and not make assumptions about what that individual's life might be like. I was intrigued to find out what other people attending the forum were inspired by this weekend and what sorts of ideas they would be taking away. I caught up with three current Rhodes Scholars at the end of the forum to hear their thoughts. I'm Cheryl Degon, Commonwealth Caribbean Scholar from 2015. I'm Shaima Fadel, I'm a first year scholar uh, from the United Arab Emirates in Morocco. I'm Lesana Lamoche, I am the South Africa Large Scholar. One, one big takeaway from the forum uh, is uh, one of the quotes from Dr. Tom Insel, which is uh, we don't manage well what we don't measure well. Uh, and in order, in order to manage healthcare, we need to be able to determine the metrics that will allow us to measure it. And those metrics are uh, dependent on identifying the actual barriers to healthcare. And uh, one of the panels we had uh, talked about uh, all kinds of barriers uh, that we have to good health and that those go beyond uh, barrier, barriers uh, to access to medical care and so it is important for us to uh, involve communities uh, rather than just people in suits to uh, investigate what are the determinants of health be it geographic, economic, social uh, and as well as medical. What about you guys? Um, well on the topic of reaching out to communities I think one of the big focuses of the program for this conference was placed, trying to put more emphasis on underserved um, populations and so one of our panels was on indigenous health and it's tying in with what you said um, in terms of reaching out to the communities I think one um, point that was emphasized a lot on, in the discussion on that panel was just giving members of the indigenous community the agency and the power to speak up about what are the barriers from their perspective that persist in the healthcare um, sector as opposed to letting experts who aren't indigenous or who don't identify as indigenous determine what those those barriers are sometimes um, individuals in the underserved populations are the people that you need to hear from and who have the best perspective on what their healthcare needs are. I think my takeaway from the conference is definitely Dr. Agnes's talk where she spoke about you know healthcare not being the responsibility of just the Ministry of Health but being a responsibility of all of us from education to social development um, and just that ownership and the stop the ending of the silo thinking um, and that just tied into what um, Jeremy Faras spoke about today, having the humility to know where your research um, ends or the boundaries of it and being humble enough to collaborate, to reach across interdisciplinary boundaries um, and to um, collaborate. 
I should stress that these four episodes have been just a taster of the 4th Roads Healthcare Forum, which took place on the 9th and 10th of February 2019. There were many other riveting talks, panels and breakout sessions that didn't feature in these episodes purely because of the limitations of space and time. Because of this, I'm going to leave you with a variety of reflections from delegates gathered throughout the weekend. Some of these relate to the talks that speakers who have featured in these podcasts gave, and some of which that relate to talks and speakers that haven't made an appearance in these episodes. The following recordings were made in the moment, fresh after sessions, amongst the hustle and bustle of breakfast, coffee, lunch, tea and dinner breaks. Spontaneous reflections recorded during short gaps in the course of these two very special days. Tarek Parker, uh, Jamaica Linico 2015. Um, I attended, my first breakout session with Adbil Al Said. I've met him before. Uh, he's an incredibly magnetic human being. Um, I'm mostly interested in like how he decided to do these very different career paths from medicine, which I can identify with, um, into academia, which I'm kind of interested in pursuing now, and then to policy, which I think most healthcare professionals don't engage actively with. Um, and I think he navigated that discussion expertly. Um, he really invigorated the crowd, and I was really happy to hear his thoughts on um, life and failure sometimes, and growing and doing things that are important to you. Um, and then um, I then attended Fred Cohen's talk, and he's also started out as a medic um, and then did very different things, did academia, and then went into DC. Um, so I'm very interested clearly in these people that have traversed all kinds of different paths through their lives. Um, and it's, um, it kind of inspires you to think that you can kind of still do anything at any point in your life. Nadine Jawad. Oh, it's about, okay. Yeah, so I actually thought that that was, for me, one of the most um, engaging, well, they were all engaging, let me restart. Yeah. So I think that that was one of the most informative for me because it's a topic kind of out of my interest area, but a little bit related, so I care about women's health care. And so I think listening to her talk about all these intersectional issues regarding mental health, particularly for women, um, was just phenomenal. She's, she's a great speaker and all of her work is very important, so I, I really appreciated her piece. Hi, I'm Rebecca. I'm a recent medical graduate at the University of Alberta in Canada. And you said you attended the breakout session with Sahana Yes, absolutely. Um, so what she actually did was um, an intervention for a parent support group for, you know, what's happened to the children as they're growing up which is very novel. It's something that, you know, pops up in the news. Like, oh, you know, this thing with Zika has happened. And then a few years later, nothing. But, you know, she's there, you know, being on the ground and improving people's lives in just a way that's I totally, you know, is amazing to be exposed to. And I wouldn't have even thought about it. Uh, so I'm um, Melindy Haggett um, and I'm just talking a little bit about the breakout session we had earlier today um, with Sarah Sweeney and Natalie and Richard Bennett for the um, Gypsy, talking about Gypsy Traveller communities uh, and it was a really fascinating session um, and what I think what I took away most from it was the kind of parallels that this community has with um, uh, Indigenous populations back home in Australia and how um, the, the needs of these communities um, are often kind of invisible to the healthcare system and services. 
Um, and we had Dr. Chelsea Bond there, um, who was also kind of engaging in that discussion and really able to draw those parallels from, um, uh, from being in a position of like working in the academic world in Australia on Indigenous health issues. I am Dr. Anne McKenna. I work for the Africa Oxford Initiative. I think the one thing that really stood out for me was um, the conversation around interdisciplinary research and thinking beyond our silos as, research, um, as researchers and also as academics. And while I really appreciate the need for us to think a lot more broadly and to have the humility to reach across our areas of expertise to talk to people, um, I really think that there's, there's need to also emphasize individual expertise because I think the best interdisciplinary research endeavors happen when they're experts in their own individual areas that come together and share knowledge. to today's podcast brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. Special thanks goes to all of today's interviewees, the Rhodes Healthcare Forum Committee, the Rhodes Communications Team and Kira Allman. This podcast was produced by myself, Christy Calloway-Gale, and the music you heard was Hopeful Journey by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org.